those of you who've been with me for all the years we've been together, this might confuse you. You're used to me doing everything focused on the Lord's Supper, on the day of the Lord's Supper, but we're going to do things a little differently today, and you will understand, hopefully immediately. The Word of God is full of a lot of very important words, and one of those words is covenant. And there's no way I can overemphasize the importance of what that means to us as children of God through the covenant that Christ paid for on Calvary. Now, it's true that covenant language itself is more prominent in the Old Testament than in the New. It focuses on a past event that has a future uh, meaning and fulfillment. Someone has said it is a story in search of an ending. And that ending is the new covenant that is ratified through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The definition of covenant is debated. For a long time, starting in the 19th century, particularly among German biblical scholars, and they kind of ruled the day in scholarship in the 19th century, and uh, even modern non-Germans, tended to focus on covenant strictly in legal terms. It was all about law or obligation. But then a change in understanding started happening. And in an almost unprecedented moment in time, uh, a growing number of scholars recognized the priority of relation over legal obligations. I say it is almost an unprecedented event Because in the 20th centuries, Protestant, Catholic, and even Jewish scholars started understanding that the main focus of Bible covenants is the restoration of relationship between a God and his creation, humanity. It is about relationship, father and child, God and his people. And it's an important understanding. Uh, It is a sacred kinship. Yes, there are, in the Old Testament, invariably laws that come along with it, but it was law that was meant to guide and bring the people further into their relationship with God, not to cause a heavy burden upon them. The biblical content of covenant is on relationship between God and His people. And today, we're going to be looking at covenants, two particularly, one old and one new. Now, some of you may be thinking, now, wait a minute, Danny, the the new covenant was purchased in the first century. How do you keep calling it new? Well, I'll explain that even further as we go along. The connection between these is crucial, crucial for us to understand. Uh, Three different groups of scholars, two men and a couple men who worked together, separated by centuries, understood this. You may have heard at least a paraphrase of a statement that was made uh, by Augustine of Hippo when he said, the old covenant is revealed in the new and the new covenant is veiled in the old. In the 20th century, David Martin Lloyd-Jones said there's only one covenant of grace and it all centers around the Lord Jesus Christ. The old points forward to him, the new reveals him, 
and holds him forth to us in person. He alone is the fulfillment of everything that is promised from Genesis 3.15 onwards. It is all in him. The original covenant with regard to redemption was fully and clearly made with him. And then in the 21st century, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellman wrote Exodus 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. They point out that in an act of God's gracious love, before the law is given, he reached out to the people who would be known as the Israelites and brought them because of his grace into the land of promise, giving them his covenant. And they said, that passage is clear. The old covenant is based upon grace and grace motivates the keeping of the covenant just as we find in the new covenant. So, this is one of those things, ladies class, some of you will know from time to time, uh, you will ask me, did you look at our Sunday school lesson? Uh, because what you preached today was just what we, we had in Sunday school. Well, folks, uh, I have witnesses. That I, I, I give themes and ideas and texts and titles three, at least three months ahead of time where God is leading me. And as I started looking at Genesis and started unfolding the passages, it was not my intent that today's passage would fall on the Lord's Supper today. But God just kind of worked that out. So we're going to look at the Old Covenant to begin with. And it is a covenant that sealed a promise. We are going to do one other thing different today. I'm not going to ask you to be standing at the reading of the Scripture because these, this first one is a very lengthy passage. And we're going to take a look at two different passages of Scripture. But this is a covenant given by God that sealed the promise God had given Abram. And so it is found in Genesis 15, verses 17 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And folks, try to capture some of the absolute wonder of what happened here. And he, that is the Lord, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be, their, and be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, uh, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless this reading. When we look at what happened here, even though God, and this is a continuation of what was happening in verses 1-6 through we looked at last year. God said, look at the stars, that's going to be like your descendants. And now know I'm about to give you this land. And Abram still had an issue with the land, though he believed God about the descendants to follow. He trusted God. He believed God was going to do something. But when it came to the land, it's almost as if Abram is saying, okay, you showed me stars and told me that's the number of my descendants. Can you show me something here that will help me know that even this promise will be fulfilled? He could not quite wrap his brain around the idea that this land was God's gift. The entire land, all the Canaanites, all the people of Canaan were still there. And God gives a list of the people who were still there. Some of them we don't even know anything about other than this text. So he's struggling to understand. And so he asks, please God, show me. Have you heard that expression, be careful what you ask for? Because God shows Abram. And there's no way on earth Abram could have imagined what was about to happen. Give me something I can hold on to, God. Show me something that can help me know that all this that you've promised is just as real as the descendants. And that's when our story moves from the mundane to really kind of the almost bizarre. You see, God moved with an air of mystery and wonder to give Abram assurance. He sets the stage. I want you to bring me some animals. A heifer, a female goat, a ram, and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And I want you to prepare them for me. So Abram gathered them together and there's an, in, there's an inference that he knew at least what partially was going to happen because he cuts them in two. And he lays them on either side. Think about it this side way. Okay? Not nearly. Our pews are actually the right color for this image. Think about it this way. On one side is one half. On the other is the other half. And there's a nice aisle in between. And that's what Abram does. He cuts the animals in half, sets them on either side, and then vultures, says birds of prey, most obviously vultures, are trying to flock down on those animals. And Abram shoes them away. He's not going to let anything keep him from seeing whatever it is that God's going to show him. Now, what God is telling him to do, Stuart Briscoe and others have pointed out, is actually setting the stage for an ancient ritual. 
An ancient ritual, when people would enter into a covenant, they would do exactly what we're talking about here. They would cut animals, and each member of the covenant, the one who is proposing, the one who is accepting, would walk through the path of animals. And the idea was, here, we are making a commitment. Now, God, aren't you really glad that all God asks you to do is, is believe and be baptized and follow his obedience there? This is what's happening. Now, there's not a lot written in the, in the scripture about this covenant taking. But Jeremiah 34, 18 probably points to the meaning of this. God is talking and speaking to Jeremiah and letting him know what's about to happen. And he says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. When you walk through that covenant pathway, you are saying, I am putting myself on the line. If I fail to keep my covenant, it would be good for me to perish. It would be good for me to experience this cutting. And if you were agreeing to the covenant and you walked through, just as Jeremiah said, you better be ready to keep it. Whoever made such a covenant and did not keep it, it would be killed. So Abram does everything God calls him to do. And then we're told a darkness fell over him. A sense of dread comes upon him. And the Lord God moves and causes a sleep to fall upon Abram. By the way, the phrase this sleep that fell on him is the exact same word that is used earlier in Genesis when it describes the sleep that God caused Adam to fall into so that a piece of his flesh could be taken and woman would be made. God brings this sleep and then the vision. And all I can tell you is this is one of those visions that if you were not shaking before, you would be after. This is one artist's rendition of what he thought it might look like. We're told that a torch and a burning cauldron walked through the path created by those animals. Folks, when you think about fire traveling, is there anything in Scripture that it reminds you of? How about the Exodus? When God walked before His people as a pillar of fire at night, guiding them in their direction. How about, while not walking, a burning bush through which God speaks to Moses and says, take off your sandals, you're in a holy place. This fire, folks, represents God Himself. This is, I've given you the word theophany, a physical representation of God on earth where people could see and experience and not die. This is God coming. And God alone 
walks through the path. This covenant is given on the initiative of God alone. And it is comes in the darkness. It comes in the night. Bringing about a little bit of what is known in the word as the fear of the Lord. That sense of awesomeness. I am in front of a holy God. And what may happen to me now? God makes this. D. Stuart Briscoe said, Eternal life is certainly a gift, but the gift bears a terrible and awesome price for the giver. Folks, in the end, God cut a covenant with the Father of faith. That word that says God made a covenant is literally the word to cut. So when you make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And in this case, it points to the act of sacrifice made in the covenant. And the significance of this is crucial that we understand. Gentry and Wellen point out that when you look back to this old covenant and then you look forward to what God is going to do throughout His Word, the covenant with Abram is the basis of all of God's dealings with the human race from this point on. The covenant he makes with Noah, it's a pretty simple covenant. I won't flood the earth again. But this is a covenant about salvation. This is a covenant of promise. From this point on, it is the basis of everything God has planned in what is known as salvation history. I have taken the initiative. I am taking the step. And I am pledging on my own honor. I am pledging on my existence that I will keep this covenant. Now, when we hear all of this, and I've talked before, Abram, Abram never got to see all of this. The writer of Hebrews talks about him wandering through this world, looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abram never got to see the promise fulfilled. And in our mind, we may be thinking, well, so that can't be a very big deal for him. Can't be. He doesn't get to see it. Well, we think that because, folks, we're Westerners. And we are very much individually focused. If it doesn't help me directly, it must not be that important. But it has been pointed out. Abram wasn't a 21st century American. He was raised in the Near East. And there was a concept uh, of theologian H. Wheeler Robinson coined a phrase, corporate personality. And we can see it throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, when AI, when AI the Israelites are coming against AI after defeating uh, Jericho, a shoe in. It's going to be an easy win. And AI defeats him. Why? <coughs> God tells him. Because Achan kept some treasure from Jericho. And all of Israel suffered because of Achan's sin. This corporate personality 
Abram knows, I may not see it, but my descendants will. And it gave him hope. And it gave him joy. It gave him life. We are not islands. We are part of something bigger. So when we look at this very strange covenant, as we look at the the horror of the bloodshed, the the weirdness and the awesomeness of that, that fire walking through the path, as we look at everything God said by telling Abram, I am going to be with you. Now did you catch what he said in your, your descendants will spend 400 years in another land? He doesn't tell Abram why. He's focusing on their time in Egypt. And the 400 years is a rounded term. Why? There's a hint in what God said. They will come back because the sin of the Amorites hasn't become complete. The people of Canaan that God tells Joshua you need to get rid of will be judged by God. And they are walking in a path of sin that is going to get worse and worse and worse. But Abram is saying, God, you told me what I need to know. And he walks forward from that point on, trusting and knowing that God's going to do what he said. So we look back at Abram's, and now with the knowledge of what God did, promising himself, let's take a look at the new covenant and its significance for us. Because it is a covenant that culminates God's plan to save. I told you it's been pointed out that the old covenant is something that happened in the past that is looking toward the future. It is a story that has a beginning looking for its end. This is the end. This is what God was doing. This is his ultimate plan. And we read about it in the passage that Natalie shared with the children this morning. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 27 We're going to look at a few more verses. And hear the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. God bless this reading. See, Paul carefully explained the meaning of the covenant seen in the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians. Why? Why does Paul write about the Lord's Supper in the book of 1 Corinthians? Because the Corinthians completely missed its meaning. The Corinthian church, Paul tells them, when you come together, you're not doing the supper of our Lord. The Corinthians had lost all sense of the ordinance's meaning. 
They were selfish and its observance. Those who had plenty of food, potluck supper, they brought all the food, they kept it for themselves. Those who had nothing were going away hungry. The people were not recognizing this is the body of Christ. This is an act of communion between brothers and sisters in the Lord based on the communion that it brings us with God. You have ignored it. You are destroying its meaning. They lost sight that this act revealed that which binds all true believers into one family. And folks, we need to remember all true believers are part of our family. They don't have to have the word Baptist in their name. They don't have to worship quite the way we do. If they know Christ, if they preach Christ and Him crucified, if their faith is based on the Word of God, they are brothers and sisters. And we have a connection. We need to get used to that idea. Because one day when we get to heaven, there are not going to be Baptist communities and charismatic communities and Caucasian communities and on and on and on. We're all going to be together. All of us. And that's kind of exciting. And folks, think of it this way. What we do on a Sunday morning should be rehearsal for what we're going to be doing in eternity. And I have a sneaky suspicion that a lot of people who are a little embarrassed about emotion here won't have any problem there. They lost sight. So Paul had to bring them back to the very beginning. He had to explain to them what it was really all about. And he used Jesus' own words. He said, this bread is my body. And it's being given for you. This cup is the cost of the new covenant. It is my blood. And it is what the new covenant has to have done in order for you to come into the kingdom of God. That's what the table is about, he's telling them. And he's letting them know this. No uncertain terms. You need to get back to where you should be. If you're doing this unworthily, you know, getting drunk and just partying and forgetting everybody else, you really shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper. He's saying, this is what's it about. Now folks, it's very important that we understand there are a lot of covenants in the Word of God. This covenant differed from all others that came before it. Nothing else is like this covenant. Later on in Genesis, we will see Abram perform the seal of the covenant from the human perspective. God walked through the path of the animals. God gives Abram the right of circumcision to show that you are part of this community of faith. In Exodus and Leviticus, we will see the Mosaic Covenant being embraced by Israel. Mount Sinai, are you going to serve God? Yes, we are. We're going to follow Him. And in the Mosaic Covenant, we have all the details about sacrifices 
What kind needs to be done for what thing? We have days of importance, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the festivals that they are called to observe, the the rituals, all. And it's all focused on this idea. But remember, God is one who flew us on eagle's wings to this place. God has opened his heart to us. So Abram and Israel, Father Abraham, they were recipients of a covenant that God would use in salvation history. But the new covenant had a much higher cost than sacrifices made on an altar. A deeper meaning of communion than feastings. Pointing to something that happened in the past. It does point, and we do remember. But it also points us to the future. Every time you do it, you're telling what I've done. And it points to a price that we could never have paid. In this covenant, God does not lay out a path of dead animal carcasses to pass through. In this covenant, it is not the blood of bulls or goats that was required. But God, very God, the eternal word, took upon himself human flesh. Not walking between animals, but walking among us. Living a life of perfect obedience. Culminating in the ultimate sacrifice. When he gave his life, his body and his blood for us. And Jesus made that sacrifice freely. Willingly. He told his disciples, they never wanted to hear him, but he told them, look, I'm the son of man. I didn't come to serve. I can't to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I came to pay the price. And as awesome and as frightening as what Abram must have seen, What we are witnessing today in the taking of this elements is awesome and wonderful and amazing and so life-affirming. Because it reminds us of the death on a cross and the empty tomb that couldn't hold him. In the end, we have, we have seen the beauty of God's act of salvation in Jesus Christ. We have seen the beauty of God's act of salvation. Folks, this was an infinite love. A love that we cannot fully comprehend. Why would God love us? Why would he love the human race when we are so capable of barbarity and hatefulness? Why would he love us? Because he is love. And he took upon himself the initiative 
just as he took the initiative with Abram walking through that path, God took the initiative in sending his son to walk this earth. And every time we partake of this ordinance, every time, may we remember that our salvation is a free gift from God. But it has never been cheap. Paul wrote in a verse of scripture that I have turned to so many times in my life, I can't even give a number. When I've wondered, God, do you really love me? Paul wrote to the Romans. Chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the end of the passage in Corinthians, Paul gives the warning. If you eat or drink the bread, the cup, in an unworthy manner, it's not going to be good. He goes on to say, test yourself. Look at yourself. Now folks, that does not mean only perfect people can take the Lord's Supper. Obviously. Because no one would ever take the Lord's Supper. But he is pointing to the heart. Remember, the Corinthians had lost sight of what it meant. Not only for their own individual salvation, but their connection to their brothers and sisters in the Lord. You are part of the body of Christ. This should be an act of love and communion with each other as much as a love and communion with God. So he said, look at yourself. And it is, is it your heart to love God? Is it your heart to love your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Is it your heart to Become what God has called you to be. And so at this time, I invite you to bow your head before the Lord. And I'm inviting you to be honest. If love is not part of your life when it comes to the body of Christ, if you have harbored grudges, if you forget, for, for forsaken the idea of forgiveness for those who've hurt you, now is the time to ask God, Father, may your grace move in my life. Teach me what it means to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Teach me to yield myself to your hand.